A very good day to you all, dear friends. Welcome to our latest installment in our study series. Last week, we talked about the politics of Jesus and showed that despite the great diversity in belief systems and in cultures and in ideologies all around the world, it all boils down to just two sides, the side of Christ and the side of Satan. And there is no in-between. There is no neutral ground. Ultimately, every thought, every action, every attitude, every behavior, every action, every system of philosophy or religious grouping, everything in the world ultimately reduces down to one or the other of two sides. It's like a fence. You're either on one side of the fence or on the other side. There is no straddling the fence. And that is why the Bible gives a clear distinction, a clear division in these matters. It speaks of the righteous and the wicked, the good and the evil, the saved and the lost, the wheat and the tears, the sheep and the goats, and many other metaphors or figures of speech are used to emphasize the point that, despite diversity or human opinions, in the end, Everyone's eternal destiny will be determined by which of these two sides they end upon. And yet the Bible is also clear that this is not an arbitrary process. Like, you know, any, meeny, miny, mo. No. Everyone has been granted the freedom to decide which side we end upon. And by our daily choices and the decisions we're making and our responses to truth, and our responses to the promptings of the Holy Spirit upon our mind and conscience. In all these things, we are making that choice, day by day, fixing ourselves in one direction or the other. By way of recapping from last week's study, the biblical idea of the two seeds was mentioned. Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman representing Christ, the promised Messiah, who would come and take on our human nature, being born of a woman, even as we all are, and by extension, meaning also those who are his. And on the other hand, the seed of Satan, meaning those through whom he works to oppose God's truth and the bearers of that truth. And these two seeds represent diametrically opposed systems which function according to opposite principles. The principle of love, even self-sacrificing love, and on the other hand, the principle of selfishness and self-exaltation at whatever cost. And today we're going to be looking at how one of these principles of Christ's kingdom has been twisted out of shape by popular Christianity. Now, we've seen from the previous studies that earthly kingdoms rule by the ascendancy of physical power. In other words, an empire comes into power, it becomes strong and mighty, it develops a powerful military, it conquers other nations, it lasts for some time, it gets rich, it imposes its will over the other nations that are weaker, exploiting them. Until it gets, I would say, just to use a metaphor, it gets fat and lazy and spoiled. And it loses its vigilance. It loses its resilience. And it settles in ease and prosperity. 
Meanwhile, there's another nation quietly coming to power, building up, getting stronger and stronger. It's hungry, it's aggressive, and it wants its turn to reign. And so suddenly, there is a conflict, there is a revolt, and it breaks out into battles and wars are fought. And eventually, the one that was the mighty one realizes that it has been sleeping while others were getting stronger and stronger. But it's too late. It is conquered and a new power takes its place. And the same cycle is repeated over and over again every two or so hundred years. And that is what history looks like. That is world history in a nutshell. And that is why we see in Daniel chapter 7, Babylon, and then the Medes and the Persians, and then the Greeks, and then the Romans, which eventually were worn down by wars, out of which came the Roman church and took the forefront, all according to Bible prophecy. Now, all of this reveals one clear-cut principle, dear friends, one common method which travels all through time, and that is the principle of force, the use of the sword. People do not give up power like that. They cling to it at all costs, and so the sword comes into play. There is violence, there is war, and there is an overthrow. Now, we must understand too, dear friends, that if God's kingdom is completely opposite to earthly kingdoms, it must therefore function based on principles that are totally opposite also, meaning totally nonviolent. Now, as we saw last week, the principle of complete nonviolence was taught by Jesus and lived by him. In Matthew 5.43, Jesus said, You have heard that it has been said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Now, sometimes Jesus spoke in parables, but not here. Here he speaks so plainly that it leaves no one with room for misunderstanding. In addition, he lived a life of 33 years demonstrating exactly what he taught, all the way to the manner of his death. In fact, when he was being arrested to be tried and crucified, one of his disciples pulled a sword and tried to defend him. We read about this in Matthew 26, 51-52. It says, And behold, one of them which were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck a servant of the high priest and smote off his ear. Then said Jesus unto him, Put up your sword in its place, for all those that use the sword shall perish with the sword. Now this was an absolute natural law that he was stating. A fact of nature that if you live by the sword, you are condemning yourself to die by the sword. In fact, the very history of Israel testified to this fact. 1,500 years earlier, when God had sent Moses to bring the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, he did so without them even lifting a finger. When Pharaoh's army, at the time the mightiest army, came charging, God's instructions to them through Moses was, The Lord shall fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. Exodus 14 and verse 14. 
And furthermore, God did not even want them to see warfare, much less participate in warfare. We're told in Exodus 13 and verse 17, And it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God led them not through the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was nearer. For God said, lest the people become afraid when they see war and turn back to Egypt. Again in Deuteronomy, Moses reminded them of God's promise. In Deuteronomy 1 and verse 30, it says, The Lord your God which goes before you, he shall fight for you, according to all that he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. So it was never God's intention for them to gain the land by warfare or by violence. But they disbelieved his promise, and they armed themselves and went to drive out the other nations with the sword, with the result that in later years they themselves were driven out by the Assyrians and the Babylonians by the sword. So when Jesus came along 1,500 years after the time of Moses, teaching nonviolence, it was not some new doctrine that he was introducing. This was a principle of God's kingdom. So at the point of his arrest, he told Peter, Put up your sword, for those who live by the sword shall perish by the sword. Peter had tried to chop off one of the soldiers' head, but I suppose as he shifted, he got the man's ear. And Jesus, the one they were after to arrest, he picked up the soldier's ear and put it back on, and it was healed instantly. And he allowed himself to be arrested. These teachings of Jesus and his life of nonviolence had a significant impact upon the life of the early church. They reflected his humility and his lamb-like submission for the sake of love for mankind, submission even unto death. And this is one area in which there was unanimous agreement among the believers of the early Christian church, which was formed by Jesus. They were persecuted but they lived by nonviolence. Even long after the original apostles had died, they continued in that mode. When we look at the first three centuries of the early Christian church, we can note their attitude against involvement in violence of any sort. The church having been recently launched by the power of the Holy Spirit and Pentecost, the church was armed with the cross of Christ and the teachings of Jesus freshly ringing in their ears, and they went forward conquering the kingdom of darkness with the gospel. And they were growing rapidly. They were not perfect. There are records of some doctrinal disagreements on one or two little things among them. But there was one thing that was unanimously agreed upon, and that was the fact that they were called to live by the rule of nonviolence. They believed that inflicting any kind of suffering at all upon others would destroy their witness for Christ, the example they are giving to the world. They would rather patiently endure pain and suffering rather than to inflict pain and suffering on others so as to escape it. And that is why the word martyr originally meant a witness, one who witnessed for their faith even through dying. And so for the first 300 years after Christ resurrected and ascended to heaven, 
There was not one dissenting voice within the Christian church on the issue of Jesus' teaching of nonviolence. They all lived by the common creed of the Latin phrase, patentia, which means patience. For them, dying was more acceptable than killing another even to save their lives. In fact, they felt that dying for their faith was probably the best way to witness for Jesus Christ and to transform the world. And thus the church was growing most rapidly even while it was being persecuted. Listen to some of their quotations. This is from Oregon, one of the early Christians. We as Christians no longer take up sword against nations, nor do we learn war anymore, but we have become children of peace. Another quotation from Tertullian, another Christian from the early centuries. He writes, And shall the son of peace take part in the battle when it does not become him to even sue at law? And shall he apply the chain and the prison and the torture and the punishment who is not even the avenger of his own wrongs? Another quotation from another early century Christian, Hippolytus, a convert from the Greeks. And he wrote, Anyone who has the power of the sword or who is a civil magistrate wearing the purple should resist or he should be rejected. In other words, anyone who believes in violence or taking life or whatever should not be a part of the church. That was just his writings. It just shows the way they were thinking back then, the mode of their functioning back then. Arnobius, another convert from the Greeks, he wrote, Rather, it is better to suffer wrong than to inflict it. We would rather shed our own blood than to stain our hands and our consciences with the blood of another. So this gives us a glimpse into how deeply entrenched the early believers were in the principle of nonviolence. But early in the 4th century, as we mentioned in a previous study, Constantine, the Roman emperor, was seeing a serious threat to the empire of Rome. And it was coming from a small but steadily growing group of people called Christians, the followers of Christ or the followers of the way. And though heavily persecuted, their numbers were growing steadily and persecution only seemed to cause their numbers to increase more rapidly as their witness on the persecution served to make other Roman citizens want to join their ranks. The more it was crushed, the faster the movement grew. Their blood was seed, Tertullian I mentioned earlier, he himself wrote, that the blood of the Christians was seed. The more they were cut down, they multiplied more rapidly. They proclaimed faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and their religious philosophy was one of loving the enemy, meeting cruelty with kindness, one of total nonviolence. And Constantine saw that Christianity was going to win. Christ was conquering the Roman Empire through his people, one martyr at a time. And besides this, the Roman Empire was facing the threat of invasions from outside nations. And on top of that, the internal threat of political problems and economic problems and social problems. And Constantine himself passed laws implementing many measures in an effort to hold the empire together because it was beginning to weaken and to show cracks. 
So two very real dynamics were working in Constantine's head at that time. On the one hand, there was the rapid spread of this non-violent Christian faith, and on the other hand, there was the constant threat of enemies outside their borders. And so the emperor realized that if allowed to continue, this would eventually pose a serious threat to the security of Rome because soon it might be difficult to find soldiers to fill the positions of those who were getting too old to fight and those who were getting injured and dying in the constant ongoing battles. Why? Because even soldiers were putting down the sword and identifying with the cross of Christ. So for Constantine, this was an emergency in the making. Something had to be done fast. Church and state had to become united. And violence in support of church and state had to become justified. So what do you think he did? He signed a law, as we mentioned a couple of studies back, ending persecution against the Christians. And he declared himself a Christian. The Edict of Milan, that was the name of that law. It was the beginning of a rapid period of merging of Christianity with paganism by the use of political power for a political purpose. How did he pull it off? I mentioned this, I'm recapping from a couple of studies back, a little bit here. He declared Christianity a legal religion, ended the persecution with the Edict of Milan. He began to lavish gifts upon the church leaders. He increased their salaries. He exempted them from paying taxes. He started funding the copying of Bibles and investing heavily in building huge, majestic church buildings. And for the first time, the church began to mean a building rather than a group of people. The church was fitfully bribed and entered into a marriage union with the state. Constantine and the emperors that followed him also employed the best minds in the Christian world to reinterpret the scriptures in such a way as to give support for the church to use violence for purposes of building up the kingdom of God. So the leadership was in a quandary. They began to, to find excuses, to rationalize. They said, well, maybe the teachings of Jesus were only for that time. And God is giving us the power of the state. He's giving us the sword, so maybe we should pick it up and use it. And so they developed the idea of justified violence. Bribed by the state, one of the exceptionally brilliant leaders by the name of Augustine, who wrote a volume entitled Just War, and in it he wrote, just to take a quotation from his book, it says, War is waged to serve the peace. You must therefore be a peacemaker even to waging war, so that by your conquest, you may lead those whom you subdue to the enjoyment of peace. So he's justifying warfare now. And different arguments started to emerge to do away with the teachings of Christ in this area and to replace it with the need to use the sword. And so gradually, the church started to change its focus. Joshua and David were brought to the forefront as mighty warriors they were presented as the real heroes, while Christ started to be slowly sidelined and pushed into the background. Augustine also wrote, What indeed is wrong with war? That people die who would eventually die anyway, so that those who survive may be subdued in peace, 
A coward complains of this, but it does not bother religious people. This gives you an idea of the changes that were taking place in the thinking that was being brought in to the church. Christians were now encouraged to become involved in and take political offices. Instead of preaching the gospel of salvation for the conversion of sinners, the role of the church was now being defined as God's instrument to punish evildoers. And by 416 AD, it became mandatory for all Roman soldiers to profess to be a Christian. Now, there were true believers then who refused to bow and to accept these changes. But the leadership now, having political power in their hands and having the majority, would not tolerate this. So it was only a matter of time before persecution would break out again and this time at the hands of the church, giving orders for those who refused to go along with the apostasy to be killed as heretics. So the persecuted church, having been bought by the government, now became the persecuting church, seeking to eliminate all dissenters and branding them as heretics. And so for the first time in history, instead of there being two distinct groups, one comprised of soldiers of the military under the orders of the kingdom of Caesar, and on the other hand, Christians as believers under the orders of Christ, for the first time there were now what you'd call Christian soldiers, claiming to be ridding the world of evil, which actually meant killing Rome's political enemies in the name of Jesus. What we are looking at, dear friends, is the actual origins of this Christian worldview of justified violence. This is the root and the ground of this popular idea, which is embraced by the evangelical world today, even as seen in America and all around the world. We are even right now living in the echo of this Constantinian movement, this shift in thinking in the church. Understand, dear friends, that according to the teachings of Christ, the minute you pick up the sword, it means you have laid down the cross. Instead of being ambassadors for the kingdom of Christ, Christians have become ambassadors for the imperialistic ambitions of the state, and they are the biggest cheerleaders during wartime. In fact, a few years ago, when the United States was sending bombers overseas to bomb an oil-rich country, one famous minister, John Hagee, his name is, he prayed. And in his prayer, he prayed that God would lead this country in our wars and that the angels of heaven would guide our soldiers into battle and grant victory to our troops over our enemies. And over and over again, you will hear different high-ranking religious leaders praying that our bombs will be guided by the angels of God so they will hit their targets and wipe out the enemy because according to their reasoning, if they are our enemies, they must be God's enemies too. Go back and look at the news. A lot of what were destroyed were at hospitals and nurseries and schools. Hundreds of children today are deformed, one leg no legs or dead, losing both hands or just totally deformed in the aftermath of these attacks. Because after all, they're heathen and we are on God's side. That is the mindset. So instead of 
following Christ's example of seeking to convert the heathen to the kingdom of God. Instead, the idea is bomb the heathen, take their oil, and this is with the full backing and support of the vast majority of the Christian churches in these so-called Christian nations. But to reject the principles of Christ, dear friends, is to become more heathen than even the heathens themselves. So the national enemies have been designated by religious people as God's enemies, losing sight of the fact that God is in the business of saving souls, regardless of where they are from. And this sentiment, dear friends, is very widespread. In fact, it's hugely popular with a significant majority of both Saturday and Sunday-keeping churches today, yes. To speak out against this kind of thinking in today's religious climate is to make yourself a target, hated and labeled as unpatriotic. For example, in America again, example, July 4th is widely celebrated as a Christian holiday. National flags are flown on in the churches on this day. And the sermons typically center around patriotism, a celebration of the national independence, won as a result of two nations who at the time considered themselves Christian nations shedding the blood of each other's sons. Look, if nations want to fight to defend their borders, let them fight. But don't call it Christian. Don't corrupt the name of Christ with a system which has nothing to do with Christ. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight. And he spoke that to a Roman governor called Pilate. Jesus said, give unto Caesar that which belongs to Caesar, but give unto God that which belongs unto God. Two different entire systems, two different modes of functioning. But Christianity has mastered the art of labeling that which belongs to Caesar with the name of Christ to justify their atrocities. Understand, dear friends, popular Christianity has evidently turned into something else, something that neither Jesus nor the apostles would even recognize if they were to show up in America today or in any of those countries that call themselves Christian countries today. But there is true Christianity, but it's a small minority, dear friends. True followers of Christ. So as I said earlier, Jesus and his teachings became sidelined. The soldiers of the cross became soldiers of the sword. The persecuted church rapidly became the persecuting church. Things changed from people being rejected from the Christian church for being a member of Caesar's military, things changed to being rejected from Caesar's military for not being a member of the Christian church. Question, are you violent? The witness of Christ is ours to give in this time. Concerning Christ, the Bible says, and he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. In other words, he was crucified as a criminal, but buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea who was a rich man who gave his tomb for Christ to be buried in. But it goes on to say, because he had done no violence, neither was there deceit in his mouth. Isaiah 53 verse 9. 
On the personal level, the cross of Christ represents the believer's voluntary submission to the will of God at all times, in all circumstances, because Christ did the same for him or for her. The cross of Christ represents self-denial as a thank offering to God for his great gift of salvation. Jesus said, if any man will be my follower, he says, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It represents the fact that you have put on Christ and that you have embraced with all your heart Jesus Christ himself and his teachings and his way of doing life. It is my sincere prayer, dear friends, that these things become fully clarified in our minds because all of us are preparing to take a stand on one or the other of these two sides. And may God bless you all with his peace and his love burning within your hearts so that you'll take your stand on the side of Christ. Thank you.